0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's
1: message. Today God speaks to us from scripture John 15, 18 through 16, 7. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. this is to fulfill what is written in the law they hated me without reason when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who comes who goes out from the father he will testify about me and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning all this I have told you so that you will not fall away they will put you out of the synagogue in fact The time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you. So this is an interesting passage of scripture here. Uh, What we see is Jesus Uh, preparing his disciples for his uh, coming death and eventual uh, ascension. And as you could imagine, knowing that he is about to leave, uh, there's some anxiety amongst the disciples. And to calm their fears about him leaving, Jesus decides to tell them, hey, listen, I'm going to go, but when I go, I'm going to send you out into the world and everyone's going to hate you. I'm sure that made them feel much better about him leaving. But he's doing this intentionally. Because he knows that as he leaves, he's going to send them out as ambassadors out into the world, and he wants them to be prepared for what's to come, to be prepared for the mission that is going to be before them, what they're going to be facing. And in this season, if you've been with us, we've been in the season uh, that we've been calling public faith, which has been uh, an opportunity for those of us here that um, claim to be followers of Jesus to wrestle with what it means to be a people that are sent out into the world and that live in particular kinds of ways that the hope that we have in Jesus becomes evident to those that are around us and as a result, prayerfully, draws them to him through the, through the life that we live and by the power of the Spirit that uh, is within us. And if you're a follower of Jesus here, these words of Jesus are not just for the disciples, they're also very much for all of us here today. As we looked at last week, it's this idea that Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we are sent out to proclaim that message. And if we do so, Jesus is saying, we're going to be hated. But we also need to be very clear about what Jesus is saying here, and also what he's not saying here. Because wrongly understanding what Jesus is, is communicating does have significant consequences with regard to the mission That Jesus calls Christians to embrace. So with all of that in mind, I want to consider here what Jesus says, what Jesus does not say, and then what he calls us to do, all right? So what he says, what he does not say, and what he calls us to do. I'm going to give you a heads up right now. My first point is quite long. I have adjusted accordingly the rest of the points, okay? So uh, just so you don't freak out. But first, what did Jesus say? Uh, Let's look again at verses 18 through through 20. Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master, but if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So, again, Jesus is certainly saying, right, unambiguously, that the world will hate his followers, and that the reason the world will hate his followers is because they do not belong to this world. And then he says that followers of Jesus, um, followers of him, rather, are, they're out of, we're out of place in this world, if you're a Christian, that we, we are to be living and thinking differently. And if you consider all of Jesus's teachings, that becomes very evident, that Jesus calls his followers to be a distinct people in this world. And as a result of that distinction, hatred will come because he was distinct and the world hated him. Now, that said, some may be kind of surprised by this idea that the world hated Jesus. And the reason why some may be kind of confused by that is because depending on where your starting point is, most people in the world actually think highly of Jesus. You know, we, uh, we considered over the last uh, several weeks, and again, just to name it today, every world religion holds Jesus to high esteem. I mean, even many secular humanists of the day have some kind of affinity for Jesus. And when you look at all the different ways that people interact with Jesus, some uh, worship him as a God amongst many, Others view him as simply a wise teacher, others view him as a prophet, others see him as a compassionate leader that we are to emulate. So what then are we to make of this fact that Jesus says that the world hates me when it seems like no one hates him? Well, I would propose this, that the reason that everyone loves Jesus, the reason why every world religion, every philosophy sees Jesus as some kind of exemplar is because the Jesus that they are considering is actually not the real Jesus. Because the only way, from a non-Christian perspective, right, that we can have an affinity with Jesus or glean any encouragement from Jesus is if we strip him of his true identity. For some, that might seem extreme, but consider what Jesus has taught about himself. In verse 22, uh, in our passage here, he has said that, uh, that he's come and that as a result, people are now aware of their sinfulness and have no excuse for their sins. So at minimum, the real Jesus calls us sinful and that we have no excuse for the sin that we uh, experience in our lives and that we live out. In John 3, if we go back to some of the things that he's said already, he's told us that unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? So there's something fundamentally wrong with us, and we need this born-again experience if we're to see the kingdom of God. In John 5, he says that we need to believe in him in order to have eternal life. And if we don't believe in him, then judgment is coming. In John 8, says that everyone who uh, commits sin is a slave to sin, but that anyone that keeps his word will never see death. And just a chapter before, he has made the claim, again, if you were with us, that he is the way to the Father. That all other ways, all other conceptions of truth are at best flawed, if not completely wrong, if he's not the center. And on top of all of that, he has time and time again referred to himself as God. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me, he means it. And this is the reason why people hate the real Jesus, Because the real Jesus rejects our conceptions of truth. The real Jesus rejects the ways of the world that might seem right to us. The real Jesus confronts us in sin and speaks of judgment against that sin. And no, he speaks of eternal life for those who believe in him. He also speaks of judgment for those who don't. And through his life and teaching, We see over and over again his disdain for injustice and sexual immorality and greed and lies and lust and lack of compassion and hypocrisy and so much more that comes so easy to us. The things that are so easy to us, Jesus hates. And the reason many think highly of him is because many just don't take him seriously, Christians included. Jesus, time and time again, claimed to be God, the creator and ruler over all creation. And I wonder, do we live in light of that truth? Do we submit our lives fully and completely to him as the creator and ruler over all things? You know, when we hear the Apostle Paul say things like, your life is not your own, I wonder, does that idea produce joy or does it produce resentment? What do you mean, my life is? Is not my own. You know, when we're told that we are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, I wonder do we bow in full submission to the commands and will of God for us? Or do we stand in defiance against them? Are our lives fully and completely Jesus's? And maybe to make some of us particularly uncomfortable, in verse 20, Jesus says something. He says, A servant is not greater than his master. Now that word servant is the Greek word doulos which also can mean slave. Paul in Romans 1 he says that he is a doulos of Christ Jesus. Are you a slave to Christ? Fully and completely his. You know, when we take the words of Jesus seriously, we see him confronting us in profound ways. And if we really take him seriously, we have one of two options with him. Either number one, we recognize him to be all that he claims, and as a result, submit fully and completely to his teachings and his commands, or we will hate him. There is no middle ground. And if either of those options don't seem to fit for you, then likely you've stripped him of his true identity and created a Jesus in your own image. And so when Christians... Teach the teachings of Jesus. Live the lives, live lives for Jesus and submit themselves to Jesus. In the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3, where he explicitly states, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be hated. If you want to live a godly life, expect to stand out and to be different. And to press that now maybe a little bit further, if we are Christians and we never feel the burden of that difference, then we need to ask ourselves if our lives are truly submitted to him. You know, there's for some Christians in the world right now, truly following Jesus means risking their lives and their livelihoods, and there's stories of that all around the world where there is very real, true persecution, very real hatred, and that is very real, and I recognize that for many of us here in the U.S., that's not something that we have ever experienced and may never experience, the burden of that kind of persecution and suffering and hatred. But for all Christians, whether you're in a nation of oppression or a nation that gives full religious liberty, if we take Jesus' words seriously, much of our lives will make no sense to the sensibilities of those that are around us. You know, for example, just consider the the biblical paradigm that we often use around uh, money, sex, and power. We use it all the time because the Bible emphasizes those three issues constantly, money, sex, and power. And each gives examples of how Christians' lives ought to be radically different than the sensibilities and the lives of those that are around us. Consider with money. You know, our work and our pursuits of money ought to be ethical and moral in ways that stand out to those who are not those things. Now, our generosity ought to be strange to those who are not generous. Recently, having a conversation with someone who's in the middle of some financial planning, and we were talking about how nice it is to have a Christian who's a financial planner because someone who is not a Christian has no concept for things like tithing. I mean, the idea, you you give away 10% of your income, that's dumb. You should be using that money to invest somewhere. The correct answer would that to be, actually, I am investing just in not the things of this world. But if our money habits are no different than anybody else's, it's likely that we haven't taken Jesus seriously. Or consider views of sex, our body, the body of others. It, the, all those views ought to be completely different than the norms of the day. You know, our sexual habits, our practices, our desires ought to be in full submission to the creator of our our body and to the the creator of the body of others and his purposes and plans and design for sex. You know, if our views of sex and sexuality are functionally no different than the cultural view, then we aren't taking Jesus seriously. And I I say functional view because let's be real. One can claim to hold to a, a... Bible's view of sex, the idea that sex is to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of a covenant relationship of marriage, but then functionally capitulate to the culture's assumptions. You know, in sexually progressive contexts, Christians ought to be strikingly conservative. But also, to be fair, in sexually conservative contexts, Christians ought to be strikingly progressive. For example, In the Greco-Roman world, a woman's body or the body of those of lesser status, uh, it was not their own. Their body was not their own. They had little autonomy over their bodies. Men of greater status than they uh, had little regulation for what they desired sexually or their sexual actions. But then Christianity comes along and says, nope, you don't control the body of another. They have autonomy over their bodies a very progressive notion. I mean, even today, in some very conservative circles amongst those who claim to have a a biblical view of sex being in the context of marriage, there are some who functionally, believe it or not, believe a wife cannot and should not refuse her husband when he wants sex. And to that, I would also say, nope. You don't have control over her body. She has autonomy over her body. Again, a very progressive notion. And those who don't believe it are not taking Jesus seriously. Jesus will always be too conservative or too progressive. And those unwilling to accept it will hate his view and hate yours as well. Consider power. The Bible speaks of power in ways that are striking the last shall be first, the first shall be last. That the meek shall inherit the earth. That the peacemakers will be called the children of God. That humility and compassion and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that these are the things that ought to mark the Christian and as a result subvert the typical pursuits of power. Our politics, the way that we lead those who work for us, the way that we interact with those who. Over whom we have some kind of influence, some kind of power, ought to be radically different than the approaches of the world. I mean, as we uh, approach another uh, very contentious political season, Christians, hear me on this, maintaining our witness as people of Jesus is more important than winning an election. And I'll be so bold as to say that if Christians must choose to use worldly approaches to power to achieve political ends, that they've rejected Jesus in doing so. We should be actively involved in our political process. It's certainly a privilege that we are able to do so. But as we are, be faithful to Jesus, even if it means you lose all political power and influence. And you know what? People will hate you for it. They will tell you that it's your fault they lost the election, that it's your fault that the legislation didn't pass, or your fault that the other party is now in power. And to that, we can simply rest in knowing the last shall be first and the first shall be last. When we take seriously what Jesus said, many will hate us as a result of what he himself was and claimed and taught When Christians live godly lives in response to what Jesus said, we can trust that we will be at times hated. So that is what Jesus did say about Christians being hated. I do want to point out for a moment, and I'll be quick, what Jesus did not say, okay? In sum, Jesus did not say that the world will hate you because you're acting like a jerk, or because you hold the beliefs that are not of me. And I know that sounds silly, but I actually think some of us might struggle with that reality more than we would want to admit. And I say that because I know that I can. Just consider those two things for a minute. First, what do I mean by acting like a jerk? Well, there are some who assume that the hatred they receive is because they're standing for truth, standing for righteousness, standing for Jesus. But in reality, the hatred is not because of Jesus or his teachings, but because of our arrogance, our anger, our hypocrisy, our judgmental attitude, our politicalization, and so much more. Christian, you can hold fast to truth and still, at the same time, be gracious and humble and kind and loving and gentle and ironic, aiming at peace with others. You know, and I I draw this out because there's very real debates right now in some Christian circles about whether or not being winsome in our approach to truth is a valid approach, right? Some very much hold that the best approach is to be aggressive, condescending in our approach, even mocking those that disagree with us, believing that this is a valid way to stand up for truth. And to that, I say, nonsense. Our stand for truth ought to reflect something that I just noted a minute ago, which is the fruit of the Spirit, When people walk away from us, Christian, after having disagreed with us, do they walk away having experienced love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If not, maybe, just maybe, we've missed the mark in how we've stood for truth. And some might say to that, because I've heard it before, is that, well, Jesus was assertive. Jesus was confrontational in his style when he rejected uh, the, the, the um, when people rejected truth. He confronted them. And to that I would say, yes, but you're also not Jesus. You know, I once heard a pastor rightly point out that the biggest difference between how Jesus can argue for truth and the way that you and I argue for truth is the sin that is constant and present in us that was never present in him. This is why Paul in Ephesians 4 tells us to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving uh, others for we have been forgiven. In Galatians 6, he tells us that um, when someone is found to be in sin, that we are to restore that person gently. Uh, in James uh, James 1 tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I come back to that verse all the time. Your anger against what is not true does not necessarily produce the righteousness of God. What's probably the best example of this was Jesus himself, actually, in Mark 3. Jesus comes, and he comes to heal a man with a withered hand. Uh, But he did so on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders were upset about it. Uh, And it says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, And some might say, well, see, look at there. Jesus, he was angry. Sure. But then it goes on to say that he looked around at them with anger and was grieved at their hardness of heart. In other words, there is certainly a righteous anger that can come when unrighteousness or rejection of truth is present. But unless that anger is couched in sorrow and grief that leads to compassion and even tears, then our anger is nothing more than self-righteousness. And we are not Jesus and must always recognize the sin within us at every moment. The last thing I would say on this point about what Jesus did not say is it's also important for us to recognize that our posture matters, like the way we argue for truth matters. Hate coming our way because we're being a jerk is not the same as hate coming our way because we're standing for truth. But the other thing is that we can actually hold beliefs or take stands on things that are not of Jesus, but then we try to make them about Jesus. And then when we experience the hate that comes, we think, oh, I'm just standing for Jesus, when in reality, Jesus is like, no, like, none of that was of me. You know, I hate to use politics, but politics tends to just be the easiest example of this. Uh, everything is so politicized, and I also, uh, I keep forgetting, we're in like 4th of July weekend, so maybe this is just, I don't know, appropriate as we think about uh, America, but in case it needs to be stated, Jesus is not an American. The United States is not a uniquely special nation before God. The Constitution is not divine, and with or without it, Christians can be faithful capitalism and socialism and every other kind of economic system none of them are god ordained conservatives don't get to claim jesus progressives don't get to claim jesus he's disgusted with them both both attempt to use some of his teachings to validate their own beliefs while ignoring others of his teachings to validate uh, to invalidate uh, their beliefs others beliefs and the hate we receive as a result of attempting to co-opt jesus for our political ends doesn't count as being hated for Jesus' sake. But with all that in mind, if you remember, we started off by saying that, again, Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples because he's about to leave soon. And he's preparing his disciples for a particular mission into the world. And so all of this idea of being hated is not some end unto himself. Jesus is not just telling us that we're gonna be hated in order for us to be hated, but rather he's telling us that this hatred will come as a consequence of the mission that he's sending his disciples, his followers to embrace. And so I want to end with considering what that mission is, considering what Jesus is actually calling us. Jesus isn't calling us to go and be hated. Jesus is calling us to a mission, which as a result may produce that hatred. So what is that mission? Let's look at it finally. Look at verse 26. Jesus said that when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. First, let me just pause there for a second. We saw this last week, but Jesus' promise to leave us alone ought to actually bring, uh, or Jesus' promise to not leave us alone, rather, should actually bring us great comfort. When Jesus ascends, he also sends his Spirit. But it says, not only that he sends his Spirit, but also why the Spirit comes. Because he goes on to say that the Spirit will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, Jesus sends the Spirit of truth, as we saw last week, to reside in us, to empower us on mission. And that mission is the mission of the Spirit which is to testify about him. And how do we testify? Well, we testify about this Jesus in the way that we live, the conversations that we have, the relationships that we develop. These are all ways that we testify about Jesus by taking his teachings seriously. Because as Jesus reminded us, as you go out, some are going to hate you because of me but he also reminds us in our passage that there will also be those who come and obey me through you. And so Jesus, in the the words of Matthew 28, is saying, well, go, make disciples, testify about me. If you're a Christian, that is our call, to go into the world and to testify about him, testify about his teachings, testify to the things that he desires for creation, for his humanity in the way that we live. And the last thing to consider here is what are we testifying about, right? Are Are we just going out to proclaim Jesus's teaching? Well, there's something else that we need to always keep in mind as we go out. He emphasized the reality that there are those who hate him, those who have rejected him. But what does he do in response to those that hate him? And this is actually a very key piece to the way that we are sent out into the world very key piece as we think about the posture that we have as we are sent out into the world. This one thing is the reason why, as Christians, we can go out into the world and reflect the fruit of the Spirit, even with those that may disagree with us. What did Jesus do in response to those who hated him? Well, in Romans 5, Paul reminds us that while we were enemies of God, in other words, there was a time when we hated God, when we rejected him as Lord over all things, that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. He died for us, laid down his life, even though we were enemies. Jesus lays down his life for his enemies. Through his life and through his death, he reconciles us to God as a result of the sacrifice that he gives. And as a result of that, If you are here and you have been reconciled to God, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is because he laid down his life for you while you were still an enemy. And now he sends you out into the world to testify of that great love. For we can only love because he has first loved us. And so I encourage us all, as we think about what it means to go out into a world that hates us, is to remember the love of God in Christ, what he has done for us, laying down his life, for us, we stand for what is true. We teach what Jesus taught. We obey what Jesus commands. But we also live lives in ways that re- reflect his humility, his compassion, his love a love that led him to lay down his life for his enemies. And we can do this because the Spirit of truth, the one whom Jesus has sent, empowers us to testify to Jesus, about Jesus, in our words and in our actions. And in that testimony, people I trust will come to trust in Jesus as a result. That there, Though there will be those that hate us, there will also be those that rest in him, hope in him, obey him as a result of our testimony. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would make it so for us, that we would rest in him, be sent out into the world, and call others to rest in him as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great grace and compassion to us. We thank you, Lord, for the reality that uh, we were once your enemies. We were once those who did not trust in you. And yet despite that, because you love us, you sent your son to lay down his life. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, his willingness to lay down his life for those who hate him. I pray that that kind of humility and compassion and love would shape us so deeply as you call us and send us to be ambassadors of Jesus in this world. I pray that we would be a people bold, committed to truth, committed to following Jesus and all that he commands. Because, Lord, I, even though there will be those that hate us, that as a result of our lives just have no idea how we uh, come to the conclusions that we come to, even though that will happen, there will also be opportunities for us to see your goodness at work in the lives of those who do come to rest in you. Would you give us the privilege and opportunity to see that happen in the lives of others and give us wisdom to know how best to bring truth to their ears. God, would you do it? By your spirit, would you do it? It is not a work we can do. It is only a work that can be done by the power of your spirit. So would you do it? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.